Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Nina Nandy, your guest host for Innovation and Duodenoscope Design. In this podcast series, my fellow hosts, Dr. Uzma Siddiqui and Ardash Thakur and I will speak with leading experts on duodenoscope-related infections and explore how technological innovation is helping us overcome this issue. In today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Michael Coachman. Michael L. Coachman, MD, AGAF, is the Wilmot Family Professor of Medicine and Professor of Medicine in Surgery in the Gastroenterology Division at the Paramount School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and Hospital of Penn. Dr. Coachman has received several awards, including the Luigi Mastriani Clinical Innovator and Special Recognition Patient Advocacy Awards from the Health System, as well as a Sid Cohen MD and Donald Martin MD Awards for the Education of Fellows and Residents. Dr. Coachman, of course, has served on many local and national societies in a variety of positions. In 2018, AGA recognized him with the Distinguished Clinician Award in Academic Practice. He has served on AGA's Education Committee, Public Affairs Committee, was chair of the Regulatory Workup Group, and is past chair of the AGA Center for GI Innovation and Technology. Dr. Coachman is currently co-editor-in-chief for Techniques and Innovations in Gastrointestinal Endoscopy and is also a member of the AGA Research Foundation Executive Board. So now I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Coachman. Thank you so much for joining us today, taking time out of your busy schedule. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the multi-society guidelines that were released in 2020 on reprocessing flexible GI endoscopes. So before we jump into our conversation, could I ask you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? There's not much more for me to say uh, <laughs> after that introduction. I always look over my shoulder when I hear an introduction like that to figure out who you're talking about. During my day job, I'm, I'm really responsible for endoscopic training and education of both the regular GI fellows and run our advanced endoscopy training program. My actual clinical practice is focused on advanced endoscopic procedures, really mostly in the area of pancreatic or biliary endoscopy, endoscopic ultrasound-based techniques, really for utilizing those both in the diagnosis and management of neoplastic and pre-neoplastic disease of the GI tract. My other uh, activities include, uh, as you already mentioned, some of the multi-society collaborative efforts surrounding endoscopic training endoscope reprocessing, and also the provision of anesthesia services in the endoscopy suite. One thing that I just want to add as far as for the AGA, I co-edit uh, one of the journals and work in the innovation space uh, with the AGA Varia Fund to help founders navigate the complex processes that exist in order to better enable their successes so that we can have better software, drugs, and tools to treat our patients, which is really the sum essence of the issues surrounding endoscope reprocessing. All right. So getting right into it, I wanted to just start with your overall thoughts on the multi-society guideline that was published in 2020 in gastrointestinal endoscopy. And of course, we're referring to the paper by Day et al. 
Yeah, so that document is really adopted by a number of different GI and surgical societies, including the AGA, ASGE, ACG, American Society for Colorectal Surgery, and also SAGES, among others. That document was mostly written by the members and committee of the ASGE, and it really is a very thorough document that covers the issues surrounding all endoscope reprocessing in an evidence-based manner. And it really leads to the state of the art and the clinical expectations in 2020 and provides a framework for going on into the future, meaning now and a good five years down the road. That framework really points out several critical steps and processes that we should all really be well aware of and assess essentially on a daily, if not per scope basis. For someone who may not be as familiar with the guidelines, I was wondering if you could maybe summarize the grade versus the non-grade guidelines and what that means. The grade guidelines really try to look at the level of evidence at the same time make recommendations that are predicated upon the strength of that evidence. The clear issues that exist with some guidelines, which are really not true guidelines in the way that the GI societies look at them at this point in time, is that they don't use clear evidence as opposed to expert opinion, and they also don't look at the levels of the evidence that may or may not exist. Uh, The GI societies, I would say, have been really good over the past 10 years in adopting the grade methodology to really be able to provide strong evidence to our members to provide guidance when guidance is possible. And then at the same time, also saying and showing where there isn't evidence. The multi-society guideline looked at the grade evidence and also identified a number of areas where grade evidence doesn't exist. Can you tell us a little bit more about the grade evidence and areas where it doesn't exist? Well, there are a number of things which become somewhat controversial where great evidence doesn't exist. And those areas include things such as the use of evaluation of cleaning with biomarkers and ATP. Other issues where great evidence really doesn't exist is in the use of more scopes and then also some of the other data surrounding whether or not other new technologies which are either recently introduced either out of the country or are going through research in the U.S. are ready for prime time. Gotcha. So this is kind of a two-part question. What do you think are the current challenges posed by duodenoscope-related infections? And do you think the recommendations that were put forth in these guidelines are sufficient to address them? So the guidelines themselves clearly look at overall all endoscopes and then do specifically call out some of the issues related to duodenoscopes. So all guidelines provide framework for evaluation and the multi-society guideline, and I really need to give a, a ton of credit to Luke John Day, along with the team that he had working with him to really make a living document. And with that, the document provides clear areas where practices need to have expertise and evaluate what is going on, and also allows for local 
decisions upon areas that are more in the gray zone. And with that, is it sufficient? It's sufficient to provide the information needed so that we can make educated decisions. Does it cover everything that is out there? No. Is it meant to? No. But it provides a way that as new reprocessing techniques or innovations are introduced, that we can figure out if they should be brought into our practice on a local level. This kind of goes along with that. So in your opinion, are there any other factors that contribute to endoscope-related infections that are not covered in these guidelines due to lack of evidence? And if so, what are they and what's being done to gather any necessary data? So I will not pretend to know what is going on everywhere out there. There is clearly some difficulty in evaluating endoscope-transmitted infections as there are suggestions as to what the culturing processes should be and what the epidemiologic markers that can be followed are. Those don't always manifest unless there's a clinical infection, and it can be very difficult to find an individual endoscope to be clearly responsible without using epidemiologic uh, methodology. We do know that some of the infections in endoscopes may be in privileged areas that may not be reproducibly able to be cultured without destructive testing, and that can be somewhat problematic in in our daily practice. So moving on to something a little different, the AAMI, as you know, the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, also released their reprocessing standard for flexible endoscopes last year. So I know you were AGA's representative to the group that started and developed the standard and that the GI societies voted not to approve the final standard that was ultimately released. Could you tell us a little more about AGA's thinking behind its vote? The AGA was part of this process to really make sure that we had a seat at the table and could understand it. With that uh, being said, ACG was also there, ASGE, along with SAGES, ASKERS, and some other non-GI societies. With that, we all really looked at the guideline, participated in this guideline development, and it's really a standard that Amy puts out one of many standards that they put out on a yearly basis. What we looked at was really the process and then some of the specific recommendations. It is not the Amy standard, which is called ST91, is not a grade type guideline. The development process and the points of debate for this were really resolved by votes of the members present in the room, not by looking at the levels of evidence and then the strength of that evidence. The process at times was somewhat concerning to us and some various points were voted on more than once with different outcomes depending upon who is actually in the room. It's important to understand how Amy is constructed, and it's important to recognize that it's a private membership-based organization, which has various stakeholders with interests in medical instrumentation surrounding mostly the safety, the care of the devices, and their use. 
What is really critical is that the members can include the device manufacturers, governmental agencies, including the FDA, healthcare delivery organizations, some accrediting organizations, and then independent consultants in the field. What happens around the table in practice is that some of these conflicts of interest are opaque as individuals could join, essentially anyone that would pay the membership fee could join Amy and then register to participate in the process so that votes at the end of the day were majority votes. And with that, someone could be employed by an interested corporate entity, but be registered as an individual. And it was not clear as far as the placards, for example, around the table, who someone was actually representing. Our names were on those placards, but it wasn't clear what was the voice that we were using when we were registering our input. So we have talked about how the participation in Amy is certainly a little bit different than the folks who are involved in the multi-society guidelines. And you did talk a little bit about how the Amy standards do not address grade type criteria. Are there any other ways in which the Amy standard differs from the multi-society guidelines? So they, they do have a difference in the way that they're put together so that there are different components of a standard. So there is a normative component, which is considered the standard. You should or you shall do something. And then the formative or the implementation component to support what you should do or must do. And with that, at times there was a lack of alignment and some things that we as the society felt were extremely important were put in the formative component as opposed to the normative. And with that, there wasn't evidence necessarily supporting any of the standard components or the implementation components at times. Yeah, so that actually goes right into my next question I have for you. There may be some recommended practices in the multi-society guideline and the AMI standard that may not be feasible for individual practices to implement. In your opinion, what do you think are the most critical things that endoscopy suites need to do and to adhere to from these recommendations? From the multi-society guideline perspective, the really critical issues are to define what standard you're going to follow. And with that, there are AORN guidelines, there are European guidelines, there are the U.S. multi-society guidelines, and it's important to choose one of those because the regulatory bodies that will come in to audit either on the state level or on a national level for Medicare, JCO, et cetera, are going to want to see what those policies are. And the policies really surround an adherence to the training and the IFUs, the instructions for use, so that one is properly performing the different various steps. Those steps may vary from manufacturer to manufacturer, but it's important to have validation and documentation, which are the real critical components of any process. Okay, I think that's basically most of the things we wanted to cover. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think that there are a few critical things that we need to really keep in mind do a DNSCOPE transmitted infections have 
appeared to decrease since there's been a lot of focus on this issue. We see fewer MAUD reports, we see fewer infection reports, and it's not absolutely certain at this point in time from the data if the problem is really in the instructions for use, whether it's the different types of the instruments, or whether or not it's training and compliance of individuals in reprocessing those uh, devices. What clearly is pointed out is that there isn't, at this point in time, a national certification standard for reprocessing personnel. And it's important that we support these people in many endoscopy units. They tend to, unfortunately, be relatively transient due to pay scale and seniority, but they are really the most critical people that we have. And it's important that we make sure that we support them as best we can. I think it's also important as we go on, the world is changing around us and we need to be able to look at any of the new innovations that come in, disposable cap devices, completely disposable devices. We need to look at not only in terms of are they clean, are they safe, but are they efficacious? Can we obtain the desired outcomes? And then in this world, we need to look at green endoscopy. There is a cost to everything that we do. There's waste, there's landfill, there's toxic environmental impact. And we need to really be careful that where we improve one thing, we're not putting additive societal costs somewhere else that may be irretrievable. But I think the key thing is innovation's occurring, things are moving forward, and we need to stay up to date on the literature to make sure that we know what we need to look at to introduce into our individual practices. Hey, well, I wanted to thank you so much for meeting with us and for your time and going over the guidelines from the multi-society guideline on reprocessing of duodenoscopes. I wanted to thank everyone else for tuning in to today's episode in our series on innovation and duodenoscope design. This program was developed by the AGA Center for GI Innovation and Technology, also known as CGIT, and made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Boston Scientific. For additional resources on this topic, please visit us at scopeinnovation.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.